Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Day Church. Whether you're somewhere in person with me or maybe you're online today, we're so glad to have you join us for our Christ the King teaching series. We're actually jumping into Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And here is basically a valuable story we're going to find out today about the King's Herald and King Herod. And it's really a story about fear and rejection. A story about fear and rejection. Now, before we get into this very intriguing story about the King's Herald, who, by the way, if you're new to New Day or new to the Bible or new church, the King's Herald is John the Baptist. We named him this in one of our series previously in one of the chapters of Matthew. And he is the Herald. He, he, a Herald is someone who comes and brings a message. It was a message of repentance, a message that was making a way for Jesus to come. And that was the job. That was the calling of John the Baptist. So we call him the King's Herald, and he was the Herald for Christ the King. And Herod, we're talking about Herod Antipas. And we'll get more into Herod as Matthew lays out the story. But before we get there, I wanted to tell you a more recent intriguing story in history about another king. And this king is named King Henry VIII. Now, during the time of King Henry VIII's reign as king of England, there actually was a Christian bishop preacher named Hugh Latimer. He kind of did a job like I do today, but he did it back then in England. And it was during the British Reformation. And the Church of England was breaking away from the Pope and the Catholic Church. So you just need to know that it was pretty hostile times between the church and the state. And in this time, in one Sunday, Hugh Latimer was going to preach a message in church. But get this, he was told that King Henry VIII was going to show up. Can you imagine? You're going to preach a sermon and the king is coming to your sermon? Mike was in first service and I was scared. Never mind, a king. Here's the other scary thing about King Henry VIII. He had a fondness for execution for those that disagreed with him. Mike has never executed me, even when my sermons are bad. I promise you that. So I'm, I'm still good. But man, imagine King Henry VIII, he might kill you. It's like, if it's not a great sermon. That's pretty scary. Well, it's recorded that when he began his sermon in front of King Henry VIII, Hugh Latimer spoke out loud, but as if to speak to himself. And here's what he said. He said, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? Be careful what you say, for he is able to take your life. Then he paused for a moment, gathered himself, and then continued again out loud. And he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand. And before him to whom one day you will also have to give an account for yourself. And then finally he said out loud right before preaching his sermon. He said, Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master. And declare all of God's word. And he did. In boldness. Hugh Latimer preached a clear and compelling gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that day. Guess what? King Henry VIII spared his life that day. And I will tell you the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey would, in just a few minutes towards the end of the sermon. But for now, I bring up that story because it's actually eerily similar to the story that we're going to find in our section of Scripture today in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. So what I'd like to do now is just dive into our text 
And I've actually divided up the explanation of our text in context in four different parts. Here's your first fill in the blank if you'd like to join me and take notes. You can find a pen somewhere on a seat behind you if you're in person with me. Feel free to fill in the first fill in the blank and it's called the fiction. First, we're gonna cover the fiction. The fiction. I wanna read the first two verses together and you'll see the fiction is how Matthew actually describes how Herod doesn't have the facts straight in regards to Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth and his ministry up to this point in Galilee. I'm calling it the fiction because you're going to see that Herod does not have the facts straight. Take a look. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. At that time, the time of Jesus, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers at work in that guy. That's not Jesus. That's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas, as I already said to you, he was the ruler of Galilee during the time of Jesus. And what you need to know about a Tetrarch, all that means is it's a ruler of a fourth part. I want you to take a look at the family tree of the Herods right now on the screen, and you'll understand why he was a Tetrarch. Do you see Herod the Great at the very top? That's the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth, when all the babies were being killed. But that Herod the Great had four sons, and that's the second row in blue. Aristobulus, Archelaus, and Herod Antipas, who's in our story, and then Philip. As a side note, I think Philip got the shaft on the name, so I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> got Aristobulus, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and then Phil. I think it should be like Philopolis or something like that, or like Snuffleupagus or something, but either way, at the end of the day, those are the four brothers. And so if you have an inheritance to give of land and to rule, then you're going to give a portion to every single one of your sons, hence the Tetrarch. His father, Herod the Great, and all of those things you saw in the slides, so it makes sense. So now, none of that is fiction, okay? So I've called this the fiction, but none of that is fiction. That is all facts. So why would I call it that? Well, the reason is Herod Antipas is under a fictional pretense about Jesus. And the reason is it's because he's been hearing about the fame of Jesus all through the land. He's been hearing about his followers. He's been hearing about the miracles that Jesus is performing. And he's realized that this Jesus has really disrupted the status quo. And because of all these miraculous things happening around him, Herod Antipas is convinced that has to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, this is fiction, of course, because Jesus was Jesus. And John the Baptist had actually never performed a miracle that was recorded. And he wasn't raised from the dead. No miracles. So why would Herod think something like this? Well, this is where Matthew takes us next. And he's actually just created an elephant in the room. John the Baptist is dead? What? Yes, that's right. John the Baptist has died, but it's not just been a death. It's been a murder. And Herod Antipas is exactly, actually having extreme guilt over the fact that he murdered John the Baptist. And with that extreme guilt, he's convinced that John the Baptist is raised from the dead and has come back to haunt him for that murder. That was his fictitious belief. You see, superstition and a guilty conscience make a strong couple. And Herod Antipas finds himself believing a fictional reality. So now let's move into point number two, because that's the fiction, but let's look at the facts. That's your next fill in the blank. That gets us to the facts. Jesus is Jesus, 
Herod's convinced it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. And now Matthew takes us into the facts surrounding the previous death of John the Baptist. He realizes I have to jump back now for the readers so they can understand how this death occurred, how this murder took place. So take a look. We pick it up in John, and sorry, Matthew chapter 14, verse 3, and it gets a little steamy, so get ready. For Herod had seized John, the, John the Baptist, excuse me, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. You want to remember that name his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, that is, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, that is, Herod wanted to put John the Baptist to death, he, Herod, feared the people because they held him, John the Baptist, to be a prophet. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Herodias, her daughter, is named Salome. You'll want to keep note of that. Verse 7, so that he promised with an oath to give her, to give Salome whatever she might ask at this event. Verse 8, prompted by her mother, that is her mother Herodias told her to say this, Salome says, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. That's what I want at this birthday party. Verse 9, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, to Salome, and she brought it to her mother Herodias. And his disciples, John's disciples, came and took John's body and buried it, his headless body, and they went and told Jesus. I feel a great need to assure you that you haven't shown up to a 1980s soap opera or to like an HBO sexualized drama, okay? I just want to assure you this is church and we plan to have church today. But you can also cancel your cable subscription, just open the Bible and you can get some really, really great stuff in there. You see, Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus. Take a look at the chart again on the screen. Herodias is the daughter of Aristobulus. You'll find her in the green. She has a brother, Herod Agrippa. We'll get to him later. So when she married Philip, Philopolis, don't forget him, when she married him and the far right on the blue line, she was actually marrying her uncle. That was her father's brother. What precipitated the arrest of John the Baptist was that Herod Antipas, again, another one of Herodias' uncles, he had talked Herodias into leaving her husband, Philip, in order to marry him. You can find that in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 6. Herod took Herodias as his own wife, after he seduced her away from Herod's half-brother, Philip, while on a visit to Rome. So if you keep looking at the chart right now, Herodias is Herod Antipas' niece. That's incest, which is against the Mosaic law. But to compound that, that's a sin. But to compound that sin, because Herodias is also Herod's brother's wife. <laughs> it's complicated. It's a twisted, incestuous web but let's just take a look at Jewish Levitical law just to make sure we know what God's word says about this. Take a look. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. You think? <laughs> God's law is on our heart. We just know something's true. And then it's in God's law that says that, yeah, that is wrong to do. That's incest. It's a sin. And John the Baptist, the herald, he had no problem calling out sin when he saw sin. 
He always preached a message of repentance of sin. That is, turn around. You're going in the wrong way. God says there's a better way. Turn, repent, and head towards God's way. And he was outraged. John was outraged that any ruler in Israel would commit such a sin so openly and unrepentantly. So he rebuked Herod severely in the wilderness. Any chance he got, he rebuked him. So you can imagine this upset Herod and his family, but this was just John's MO. Whether you were a king or whether you were just a common person, he had no problem coming up to you and he would say to you, here's where you're going wrong, but here's where God has a better way. And let me encourage you and let me inspire you to consider what God has for your life because this life is just temporary. There's something so much bigger. Let me show you. And John just had this way that even though when he would share the truth, it would cut, it would offend. And honestly, the Holy Spirit would use it to convict people, whether you were a king or a common person. But people would walk away, though sometimes offended. They were also astonished. John the Baptist, he was amazingly popular with the people of his time because the people of the time, they, they had a desire to hear what was true. They had a desire to, this doesn't feel right. And this man saying things and everything he says resonates. And for some reason, what comes off of that guy's lips, I can't help, but I can't ignore it. There's something to this message, popular, respected by the people, even though he didn't mince words. And even though Herod was upset, because he's literally calling him out, we know from Mark chapter 6, verse 20, that Herod was also simultaneously fascinated by John, just like the people. Take a look at Mark chapter 6, verse 20. Because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod would hear John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Even though John would tell him, you're in a messed up, incestuous, weird family tree, Herod. But here's God's best. Here's the truth. Here's what I stand for. And Herod couldn't help but want to hear more while at the same time being so offended by him. So we got Herod with a mixture of respect, fear, and disgust. But then there's Herodias. What a gal. She's just disgusted. And she has been holding a grudge against John and has wanted him killed since the first time she ever heard that John the Baptist was speaking out against her relationships. How dare he? We're noble. How, how dare he talk bad about what we decided to do in our own love life? And so he's spoken out against her incest and her debaucherous lifestyle. So Herodias says, not anymore. I'm going to have that guy arrested. And she does. John is placed in a dungeon inside Herod's castle for a year. But since Herodias is so hate-filled, so jealous, so vengeful, so immoral, imprisonment is just not enough for this sick woman. So I think in the sickest act you could do, she decides to involve her own daughter in a plot to have John the Baptist killed. He can't just die in a dungeon. That's not enough. I want to see something worse happen to John the Baptist. She gets Salome to do a lewd dance before her stepfather Herod and his guests. And this is a ploy to get John the Baptist murdered. You need to understand that in those times, Roman nobles, they frequently held birthday parties that would be full of gluttony, excessive drinking, erotic dancing, and sexual indulgence. So in verse six, when it says that Salome pleased Herod, this is her stepfather, it means she sexually aroused him. So this is what Herodias, Salome's mom, decided to put her, put her up for. And so he rashly promises an oath in front of all of his drank, uh, drunk, sexually indulging friends. 
and she asks for anything. He says, whatever you'd like, up to half my kingdom. Again, he's not, he's not a real king. He can't really even promise that. But he's saying, whatever you'd like, I'll give you anything you want because you've pleased us in such a way today at this debaucherous party. And so Salome, prompted by her mother, as it says in verse 8, asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. But make no mistake, this is Herodias' request. A request made just because she's angry at this man named John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist really do? All he did was he stood up for the truth. For a man who said, I'm not going to go the way of culture. I will stand for the truth no matter what it costs me. And in front of a debaucherous leader over Jerusalem, over Israel, well, that was too far. In those times, a promise made with an oath was considered sacred and unbreakable. Herod was grieved, but don't be fooled. His grief had nothing to do with remorse for sin or with genuine repentance. He was sorry that he had been tricked and his pride would not let him do what was right. Instead of admitting that his promise was a foolish thing to say in a drunken stupor, the king allowed himself to commit an enormous crime while drunk. I mean, the people were going to find out about this. You did what to John the Baptist? No trial, nothing? I mean, they were going to be outraged. He did all this to save a reputation that he never even had. He had a horrible reputation. The orders are given and John the Baptist is beheaded in the, in the dungeon of Machiris, which is where Herod lived. One writer comments, and I thought this was so powerful. He says, when the dish was brought in with the bleeding head on it, no doubt Salome took it daintily in her hands, lest a drop of it should stain her. And she tripped away to her mother as if bearing some choice dish of food from the king's table. It was not uncommon to bring the head of one who had been slain to the person who ordered it as a sure proof that the command had been obey. What had John done to deserve such a death? Again, he simply stood for what was true. In a beautiful ending to an ugly scene, John's disciples prized a proper burial for John the Baptist. That was their teacher. They had followed him. They had given their lives for him. So even risking their own lives, they get the proper burial for John the Baptist. And then where do John the Baptist's disciples end up? Remember, John's whole desire was to be away for Jesus to come, for the way. He wanted to be a signpost to point other people to Jesus. And where do John's disciples end up? At the very end of this section of scripture, I think it's so fitting. They end up right at the feet of Jesus. A great legacy of John the Baptist. That was a lot. But those are the fascinating facts of the death of John the Baptist. And though that's all the scriptural verses, there are still two more things that I think we need to cover and we need to look back to because I think they stand out in this story and we can't glance over them. So here's your next fill in the blank if you're still with me. We've talked about the fiction. We talked about the facts and there's a lot of facts there. But now we're going to talk about the fear. That's your next fill in the blank, the fear. If you were listening closely, you may have seen a theme of fear in this story but it's actually handled quite differently depending on which character we're looking at. So let's start with Herod. I want you to take a look at verse five with me again from chapter 14. This is about Herod. And though he wanted to put him to death, Herod did want John the Baptist dead as well because he was offended by him just like Herodias. He feared the people. Herod was afraid of the people, what they thought of him, what they might do. He lived in constant fear because they held John the Baptist to be a prophet. I don't want you to miss this today. Herod feared almost everything and everyone except for God. That was his big mistake. He feared the multitude. He feared John the Baptist. 
he feared his wife. I know some of us, that's still true, but you know, you know what I'm getting at. Herodias was something else. He feared his wife, rightfully so. He feared his peers. Remember, because of the oath he took in front of them, how am I going to back down? I'll look like an embarrassment. I won't look like a real tetrarch. They'll, they'll judge me. They'll make fun of me. He was afraid of his reputation. He also feared and attacked by King Eratos. This was the father of Herod's previous wife. I forgot to mention this to you. I didn't forget. I had it here the whole time. Thesalus was his first wife before Herodias. And in order to steal Herodias from Philip, he had to first divorce his own wife. The problem is, his wife, first wife, her father was a king, King Eratos, down in this famed city of Petra, about 50 miles south. And when he does that, what do you think King Eratos felt about the way his daughter was treated? He didn't feel great about it. Dads of daughters, you understand. You love your baby girl. Everybody better treat her well all the time. That's what you're worried about. But most of us, we're not kings. There's not much we can do. <laughs> but when you're King Eratos, you're going to go after this guy. King Eratos heard what Herod had done and divorced his daughter. Guess what? They had a treaty, but that existed no more. In an instant, the treaty's over and Herod is so afraid for his own life. Every day waking up, looking over his shoulder, when's King Eratos coming for me? So Herod lived in constant fear, but I don't want you to miss this. John the Baptist had a fear too, though not as explicit in the text. It's certainly implicit. John the Baptist, oh, he was afraid, but his fear was much different. The only thing John the Baptist feared was the Lord. He had one fear. Herod feared everything and everyone. John said, there's one thing I'm afraid of. There's one thing I hold in awe. There's one thing that's more important to me than anything else in the whole world, and that is my creator God. Take a look at Proverbs 8.13 with me, please. Proverbs 8.13 says this, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. That's the kind of fear John the Baptist had. John knew what the worldly fear produced. He'd seen it in his tetrarch, Herod. He'd seen it in Herodias. They lived their life searching for pleasure, searching for status, trying to go up the next rung in life, trying to make a name for themselves, looking for pleasure, going to every one of those Roman birthday parties, trying to find meaning. And every single time, they'd come up empty. And John watched as they were so afraid of their reputation, which already stunk. They were so afraid of what they would, would, would happen to them if someone else got more status than them overnight. And John said, what, what a waste. What a chasing after the wind. John says, I'm going to fear the Lord. You can fear everybody and everything, and you'll end up rejecting God. Or you can fear the Lord. You can carry out what you've been called to do in this life, and you can live it boldly for God. Even in the face of dungeon life for a year, and that's what happened to John the Baptist before he was beheaded. He spent a year in the dungeon of Machairus. Even in the face of that, you can continue to stand on the principles of truth. John the Baptist shows us that even in the face of death, you can stand. And he did. You see, this story shows us that Herod feared man, but John stood up against man because the only thing that John the Baptist feared in this life was his creator 
and the one who holds not only this life in his hand, but the life to come. This leaves us finally with point number four, which is the fate. If you're still with me, you can fill in point number four. It's the fate. The fate. The fate of John the Baptist is pretty clear. I think you understand. His race on this side of eternity had come to an end. And it was a bloody end. He is beheaded for his belief. He stood the test. And he stood for the truth. And he stood for God. And he was beheaded. John the Baptist left this life without his head on his shoulders. But I assure you, when he showed up on the other side of eternity and he stood before God in fullness of spirit, I'm convinced that God's words to John the Baptist would be, well done, my good and faithful servant. The Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And in that moment, John stood for what was right, faced his death, and then saw his creator God on the other side. That's the fate for John the Baptist. How about Herod Antipas? Well, don't forget that wife that he divorced so that he could marry Herodias. Historians like Josephus help us understand that his ex-wife's father, King Eratos, ended up destroying most of Herod's army. And he would have slain Herod as well had not the Roman army intervened. Barely escaping death, years went by, and Caligula, who is the third Roman emperor, came to the Roman throne. Herod's brother Philip actually dies. Philopolis, don't forget him. We're never going to forget him now. He dies. So Caligula gives Philip's province to another one of Herod's family named Agrippa. And with the province, Caligula gives a legitimate title of king. You see, Caligula and Agrippa were buddies. So Agrippa's an actual king, not just a tetrarch. He's the real deal now. Take a look at the chart one more time so you can see Agrippa. That's Herodias's brother. See Herod Agrippa I on that third line? That's Herodias's brother. This will shock you, I'm sure, but Herodias is moved to bitter envy when she finds out that Herod Agrippa, he gets to be king? And I'm just the wife of a tetrarch? Mm-mm. She says, nope, not nope, over my dead body. Is that going to happen? So what does she do? This lovely woman, Herodias. Once again, she goes to her husband, Herod, and she says, we're going to Rome. We need to get our fair share. I will be queen. I want you to take me to Rome. Let's go see Caligula. Let's make sure he makes us king and queen just like Agrippa. This is ridiculous. How could this happen? You know what Herod says? I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think a lot could go wrong if we do this. Are you thinking straight, Herodias? And she won't have any of it. So she convinces Herod to go to Rome to ask Caligula if they too can be granted king and queen because she's determined. As Herod and Herodias prepare to set out to Rome, Agrippa sent messengers to forestall him with accusations that Herod was preparing treacherously to rebel against Rome. Agrippa lies and sends a party ahead. Want to know the result or the fate, if you will, of Herod and Herodias? Well, Caligula believes Agrippa's accusations he takes Herod's current province from him with all his money and he gives everything to Agrippa instead. 
Then Caligula banishes Herod and Herodias to far off Gaul to languish there in exile until their deaths. Anybody feeling really bad for Herod and Herodias at this point? Any empathy? Is there any empathy in the room for them? (laughs) Not much. There's like a poetic justice there. That's the fate of Herod, Antipas, and Herodias, his wife, his brother's wife, his niece. Steamy stuff, right? (laughs) Other than being a bit entertaining, if you're a Bible nerd, what's the point of a passage like this for us today? I mean, you can walk out of here right now and you could just say, well, I learned something. And that just makes you a smarter sinner. (laughs) But you can be a smarter sinner and you're always able to walk out of church just like that. But is there a bigger point? I know we've had a lot of King content today, but will you allow me to go back to the original story that I started the message with? Remember how I told you about that bishop preacher from England named Hugh Latimer who had to pump himself up to speak the truth of the gospel in front of King Henry VIII? Remember how I told you that King Henry spared Latimer's life? All that is true. But King Henry VIII had a daughter. I said wife in the first couple services. I got that wrong. He had a daughter. But his daughter ended up with a lot of similarities to Herodias. King Henry VIII's daughter was Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. Guess what Bloody Mary liked to do? She liked to kill Protestant Christians. She ultimately gave the order for Bishop Hugh Latimer's execution, an order that would have him burned at the stake alive. On the day Hugh Latimer was to be burned alive, he was tied up to the wooden poles and they started lighting the flames. Next to him was another clergyman, a preacher like me, dying the same fate. To calm the other clergyman down, Hugh Latimer said to him, and I quote, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust, shall never be put out. I'm sure he was afraid, but Latimer, like John the Baptist, feared God more. I prayerfully considered what we need to know as a church after understanding such a powerful story like John the Baptist's death. And here's what I think we need to know before we walk out of here together today. So, These are your last two fill-in-the-blanks, if you'll humor me and fill them in. What I believe New Day Church needs to know as it walks out into the work week and the school week and whatever else you're going to do outside of today, you need to know this. What you fear determines what you will reject. In this life, what you fear will always determine what you decide to reject. You see, sometimes you and I, we fear that the times we're living in are so much worse than they ever were. We're fed this all the time with the news or the news feed on the internet or maybe on your feed for social media. Fear after fear after fear. Constant fear that this world's going to hell in a handbasket. There's no way it's ever been worse than it is today. But can I tell you, I can't remember the last time that a Christian inside America's borders was beheaded or burned at the stake. I assure you that it has been worse for believers in history. If you don't believe me, just ask John the Baptist. Just ask Hugh Latimer, who was burned at the stake. 
There are Christians in our world today who are facing similar outcomes when they decide to stand for Jesus. And all of these people, including those in foreign countries today, and the men we spoke of in the sermon today, in spite of all of that, they never rejected God. I'm not saying they weren't afraid. Of course, who wouldn't be afraid in that moment tied to a stake and the flames are lit? Of course, there was fear. But what did he fear more? He feared God. He said, I can't go back. I must stand no matter what because there's more than this life. If it were just this life, take me down. I renege. I'm sorry. I'll stop preaching the gospel. I'll do whatever culture says. But there's more than just this life. There is a life to come. And a man like Hugh Latimer will stand. And a missionary in China will stand. And a missionary in the Middle East will stand. And Americans must stand too. At least those that fear God as well. Jesus himself said this when it comes to fear. Take a look. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. We covered it a couple months ago. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We go around our lives and we're afraid of people's opinions. We're afraid of all these things on this side of eternity. Earthly things concern us to such a level that we've forgotten that that's just this life, this temporary vapor of a life. There's one that controls this too and the life to come. Where is our fear for him? We live in a time where you fearing God may mean that you will be canceled by a woke culture. I hate to break this to you, but you might end up getting unfollowed on Instagram. I know it's going to hurt so bad. You might get unfriended on Facebook. And I'm not on TikTok, but something might happen to you there too. I don't know what they do. Maybe unwatched. I don't know. You fear God, that, that could happen. You might be fired from your job for standing for the truth. It's true, that can happen. When you fear God, which means you stand for truth and you hate evil, then you will reject certain sinful components and actions and norms of our culture. And just like Herodias and just like Bloody Mary, our culture sometimes won't take kindly to you, Christian. And that's scary. It's scary. It's scary. But I got a question for you today. Will you stand? Will you stand anyway? If you're a teenager in the house, will you stand? Will you stand anyway? When the culture says, how could you? But when your God says, I got you. I'm the one. I've got this life and the life to come right here. Trust me, stand. Will you stand? With gentleness and respect, will you be salt in a decaying world like John the Baptist was willing to be? Will you stand? John the Baptist was the herald of hope, the herald for Christ the King. John stood. Will you? Will you stand with love and kindness? But will you stand and be the light in a dark world like Hugh Latimer said, I'll do it. I'll stand. Will you stand like him? Will you stand 
Yeah, they took his body. Yeah, they burned that man at the stake. But his name is on my lips today. There's a monument for Hugh Latimer in England today. But I'm in Enfield, Connecticut. It's the 21st century. Andrew Charco is talking about him. I'm preaching about him because he's a man that stood for Jesus. And I want to be like that. And I want more people to be like that. Will you stand? Especially Christian here in America. You have so much less on the line than he did truly. So will you stand? Are you here today and you fear that cancel culture so much? Are you here today and you fear what your coworker might say when they find out you love Jesus? Are you here today and you fear what your hairdresser might say when you bring up your faith story while she's doing those beautiful highlights on you? Are you afraid that your college professor will label you the Christian when you walk into their classroom? into that logic class like my professor did to me at Westfield State when I was growing up. He called me the Christian. And every day when class would start, he would walk over to the skinny windows in our college classroom and he would put his face inside the little skinny windows of Westfield State College and he would say, Satan is watching you. And then he would stare at me. He was mocking me. He was mocking my faith. How could a logical person believe in a Satan? How could a logical person believe in Jesus? How could a logical person believe in a life to come, a creator God? Is that too much to bear if that were to happen to you? If it is, here's what I know. You'll be like Herod. And your fear of fear of man will ultimately cause your rejection of Christ. That's the only possible outcome. If you're afraid of that, you will ultimately reject Christ because you won't be able to stand because what you fear always determines what you will reject. And if you refuse to fear God, you'll reject him ultimately. I want you to know, I don't always get this right. But in that semester as a college student, I aced that logic class. Nobody scored higher than Andrew Charco. And I even solved that like goodwill hunting type of problem. He would put it up on his whiteboard in the office area and I was the only kid in class that could solve it. So I was like, dude, I'm logical. I just got to tell you that I'm logical. I'm going to ace your class. And I decided that when he called me the Christian in that semester, I'll embrace it. Yeah, I'm the Christian. And at the end of that class, before I walked out of there for the very last time, I brought with me a Christian resource, a book. And I handed it to that logic professor. My life was never in danger. But can I tell you something? The fear was real. I would go to class and I would be pretty afraid. But guess what? I feared God more. I decided to fear God more and I didn't have this at that time. And I wish I did. I wish I had what Hugh Latimer said in those days. I didn't have it. But if I had it, you know what I would have said to myself? I would have said, Charco, Charco. Do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty logic professor? Be careful what you say, for he is able to make fun of you for your beliefs. And then I would have said something like this. Charco, Charco, do you remember that you are really speaking before the king of kings and the Lord of lords every day of your life? Before him at whose throne your logic professor will stand one day. And before him to whom one day you, Andrew Charco, you will stand and give an account for yourself. And finally, I might wrap it up like this and say something like, Charco, 
charcoal. Be faithful to your master, Christ the King, and declare all of God's word every day of your life. Can you stand like that? John the Baptist did. Hugh Latimer did. College-aged Andrew Charco did. And maybe I even did it again today. What about you? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? I would love to pray over you. Because I didn't do it alone. It was the power of God's Holy Spirit that gave me the strength. And the same is true about Hugh Latimer and John the Baptist. I want to pray for that same power of God to fill you today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, that's comfortable. Will you pray something like this in your heart, not out loud? Heavenly Father, I want to stand. If there's one fear in my life, God, I want to fear you. I know you love me. I know you sent Jesus to die in my place for my sins. I know that he was risen from the dead to defeat death, to defeat the grave, to defeat sin. You have the power of life and eternal life. How could I not logically only fear you? God, I pray for your power, the great strength of the Holy Spirit to empower, to infill. God, would you give people the strength to stand? God, in the 21st century, in this little area of the country, God, would we stand? Help us to be afraid of you in the biblical fearful way. That means to obey, to be in awe. God, let us do that in our lives and let us reject the wrong ways of culture. Let us reject what society would say we should do, even though we know it's sin. We know it's against your word, your law. It's so obvious. God, give us the strength to stand. God, we can't stand on our own. We need your strength because it's scary. There's things that make us fearful. But God, we don't want to fear those things because we know we'll ultimately reject you at the other side. And that can't be. Because why would we fear someone that could maybe at worst take our life on this side when you hold the power to both this and the next in your hands? God, give us the power to stand. And for any person that has not gotten in the right relationship with you, God, I pray they would accept your son, Jesus, today. Let this be the moment that they now have peace with you so they can fear you in that awesome way, knowing they're good with you, but now all they want to do is serve you. God, let this be the day for somebody to make that decision and then for the rest of us, Lord. Would you call our name? Charco, Charco. You can stand. Will you whisper in someone's ear today, God, that they can stand by your power alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things today. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. 
We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you, and we hope to see you again real soon.